So, uh, hey, Mike. Hey, Colin. Welcome back. Where you Thanks. Ah, I've been in Southeast Asia. I guess it's easy, the most concise way to put it. Was it fun? It was. It was very nice. Yeah, I took a two-week vacation in Thailand and Bali. And uh, it's been a long time since I've taken a vacation. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was just going to ask. Uh, I can't really recall you going on an actual vacation that wasn't like going to visit family Vegas. or or yeah, <laughs> going <laughs> going to visit trade shows. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. It's been it's been wow. God, it's been ten years. Wow, I think you're much better at the vacation thing than I am. Yeah, although I'm I'm headed out to DC tomorrow, and I'm kind of excited because I'm going as like squarely a tourist, which I I, I usually you know I, I I've done Europe you know fairly frequently as a tourist, but I never get to U.S. cities as a, as a tourist. So I'm kind of you excited. Usually go to DC to lobby. Well, see, I've been out there the last couple of years for conferences and really liked it, and I thought I'd I'd give it a try as a tourist. And then you know I'm out in San Francisco, but I'm never there as a tourist. And, yeah, congressional subpoenas too, lots of those. Yeah. None this time. None this time. That's good. You don't have to bring in your dresses. My dresses? Sorry, Monica Lewinsky joke. Oh. <laughs> Bit of a stretch. Sorry. Not quite four, topical 14 enough. Years late. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So what are we talking about this week? What have we been up to for the last um, three or four years? The last ten years since I last took a vacation? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, scope box three. That's the big thing. So... Vacation was big, but even bigger is it's official. It's locked. It's ready to go. Next week, Tuesday, March 6th, 2012, Scopebox 3. It drops. Available for sale. Yeah. It does drop. Free upgrade it's for uh, all existing customers. And yes. for new customers, we'll have a trial uh, so you can see how you like it. And then purchase it for the uh, very reasonable price of $99. Yeah. So. Just why I'm drinking a beer right now. Because we're done. I think we're ready to go. Yeah, there's a zip file on a server somewhere. Don't go looking. Don't try. <laughs> it's not where you would think. <laughs> it's totally not named what you would think either. Um, so why why did we not just stop at 2.1? Hmm. Well, I mean, I guess the easiest answer is because the industry didn't stop when we shipped 2.1. Well, it stopped briefly to catch its breath from the gasp. True. And the recession. (laughs) (laughs) Global economic meltdown. But after that, we all got frothy again. And, you know, lots has happened. We've gone to 4K. People started shipping... You know, believable RGB 444 capture solutions. Uh, people started doing a lot of stuff in higher bit depths. Uh, Computers what got fast enough for real time transcoded acquisition, and um, Thunderbolt hit the scene. So we've got a new wave of people looking for ways to deal with high, yeah. you know, high bit rate sources. So, yeah, so, so we had a lot of things to. Ad- you know, so the the market's kind of shifted some, one and two, we we learned a lot, I think, from two. Um, 
So, so let's go back and do some some ancient history. So, one came out, and I'm not sure we've ever publicly said this, but uh, I so I back then it was me by myself in an apartment, whereas now it's me by yourself <laughs> in an apartment talking to you over Skype. But you're okay. on a different coast now. That's true. And the weather out here is much more amenable to upgrading. Yeah. I don't know. But yeah. um yeah. But yeah, so the thing came out version 1 and it was I'm not sure so there's this, you know, there's the the standard thing whenever you start a project where you're not really sure where it's going to go and if it's even possible. And that was even a little bit more true with Scopebox because people, you know, DVRack had entered the market, but they weren't really doing the same thing as us. They were a lot lower quality and a lot, a lot more fixed in functionality and uh, supportive formats and such. And so it was sort of an open-ended question whether or not you could do you know, real full raster scopes in real time on a computer. And on a with, Mac. Right, with various, you know, with sort of an open-ended capture scenario. Um, because, I mean, I don't think we even know yet if DVRack was doing full raster. We do know that all the other software solutions out there, like Scopo Gijo and, you know, the scopes in Final Cut and all the various other capture tools, we're all doing, you know, some sort of massive subsampling. Like I think Final Cut at that point was every sixteenth line. Yeah. Um, and so the idea of doing it was a little ludicrous. The idea of me doing it was even more ludicrous because I wasn't a developer. I was a color correctionist and a finishing editor. Um, and the idea of doing it in Real Basic, which was actually the programming language that version one was written in, was even more ludicrous. And even the Developers who worked for Real Basic said <laughs> it was a little ludicrous, um, just because it wasn't really a. It wasn't known as a performant language at the time, um, and so it took a pretty major rewrite of a lot of the functionality of Real Basic, doing it on our own to get that working, uh, and so you know, lots of there were lots of open-ended questions when the whole thing began. And, you know, to my chagrin, it worked, and the app launched, and people seemed to like it. And pretty much the moment, maybe even before it shipped, there was, it had been decided that it had to all be redone. <laughs> right. We can, we can say that now. Um, yeah, so, like, the minute, the minute one was, was locked, and shipped. Uh, I frantically started trying to learn Objective C so I could rewrite the app in a real language. And Objective C, for those who don't know, is it's C. You know, it's the same language that we've been using since the seventies. You know, and it is, but it's got a little bit of stuff on top to make it a little bit more humane. And, it's and the it is the language the house language for Apple. Is that the right way to the mezzanine language? Sure. Apple. Yeah. Yeah. It, and, and it's the language upon which the development framework called Coco is um, written. 
that is the sort of framework that is the native framework for Mac OS X. Right. So everything you run, everything you download from the App Store, ostensibly, is, <laughs> is a Coca app, unless it's snuck through. Right. Um, and everything you get on a CD with an Apple logo on it is probably written in Coca. And everything, you know, most most every program on your machine, if it doesn't infuriate you every time you launch it, it's probably a Coca app. Right. Because otherwise it's slow or just not quite right, or the things, the gradients don't quite look like they're supposed to, or the text fields don't highlight when they're supposed to, you know. If it feels like a real native Mac app, it's written in Coca. Right. Story. And so I started rewriting everything, and that took, that actually went pretty quickly. But two was all about just redoing everything. Right. Well, the other big thing that happened, you know, in the wider industry, when Scopebox One launched, um, I would say, the bulk of our users were using DV cameras or DVC Pro HD with the, the HVX 200, which had just come out. Right. Yeah, it was the age of FireWire. And then when AS2 was coming, uh, HDV cameras started hitting the scene. And so right. 2 added support for those HDV cameras and sort of coincidentally spawned the ClipRap application. ClipRap, yeah. Um, and then what we saw in the wider industry is... Pretty quickly, you know, the, the life cycle for HDV was pretty short, especially compared to DV. Um, that pretty quickly, people started moving on to higher quality things like AVCHD, and also the sort of fragmentation at the upper prosumer and and pro end of the market, where we split into all these different solid state acquisition solutions and things. Right. And so it went. It went from the age of FireWire to the age of HDV to the age of solid state right and when we also saw in the same time period we saw apple's support for firewire waiver um when they you know dropped it from some of their laptop products um and you know it was when the camera manufacturers have also dropped it i mean right right well but you know hdv was the last format to do live output over firewire right so and so what came with that is a need to so a bunch of things happened with that trend that last transition and that's what we're trying to address with three um, one was that now pretty much every camera out there if it has an output it's an uncompressed output so it's HDMI HDSDI SDI or the various flavors of HDSDI um, right but it's it's uncompressed YUV data or RGB data just sent down a digital pipe. So analog is dead, by and large, and compressed formats over digital are dead as a as a live format. Right. And so one that means huge data rates, but it also means that we don't we don't decode the video on the head end of the system but it also means we can't just write the video out to disk either because you know what we used to do what the way that it worked in scope box one and two is whatever format your camera was shooting is we would just take that data and write it out to disk and that was your recorded file you know so if you were shooting HDV it was coming in MPEG 2 over FireWire 
and we'd write that MPEG-2 data to disk, and you'd get an MPEG-2 transport stream or a QuickTime movie, which you know was essentially a clip-wrapped movie sitting on your drive. And so, you know, we were dealing with 25 megabit signals still. And, uh, you know, as people, as all of these acquisition styles went to uncompressed, we had, you know, I think, I think our bread and butter for user configs has, you know, split sort of down the middle. There's towers in edit bays and there's laptops in the field. And those laptops in the field are just, you know, we're just getting trounced by this transition because you have uncompressed video coming in over something like a matrox. And you can scope it great because you don't have to decode it, you know, so it's actually faster. It's a better performance than you were getting with an HDV camera. There's less lag. But trying to write it to disk was insane because you're talking... Right, pretty much the only way to do it up until, you know, the last six months was get a tower with a fiber channel card and a fiber channel RAID array attached because that was about the only way to attach fast enough storage to a to a machine. You could maybe with a Mac Pro do an internal RAID array with hardware RAID, but again, you know, that's even even that was right on the edge. Right. And so we realized that we had to add transcoded records. So that's you know, and in the laundry list, that's one of the big features in Scopebox 3. We now We'll take whatever your signal is coming in off the camera, the capture card, and we will convert it to whatever format you want. And it's basically the list of codecs that you get in CLIPWRAP, so the professional industry codecs, you know, DNxHD, ProRes, AIC, DVHDV, DVC ProHD. Uh, am I missing any? Did you say Apple Intermediate? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. So the big the big codecs, um, and then you can choose a random one, but those are the ones you want. And it's the same, like no settings. Just pick a pick a codec, and we'll get it there. And that you've come to expect in ClipRap. And so you know, so that's been so that was fairly involved process to get that working. Two, you know, at the same time we've learned a lot from users. Um, so one, with version one, I sort of wrote it in isolation, showed it to a couple people a month or two before it came out, and the number one request was, oh my god, this is great, I love that I can monitor, I love that I've got these scopes, I love all these great things I can do, can I record too? <laughs> like speaking of all these things you're doing on the, you know, on the bleeding edge of what the computer can do. Can you also record the video to the drive and make sure you don't drop any frames? And I said, yes, almost always. <laughs> <laughs> and so we added it, but it was, you know, it was the it was the last feature added to Scopebox One. And it was always it worked most of the time. And and so two came along and I re-examined the whole thing. And I just found out there's not there wasn't really a better solution like it capturing QuickTime onto a computer is sort of a dicey proposition um, and you know and you anyone who's worked with Final Cut or anything else knows that too like you'll get well, 20 minutes into a Final Cut capture and then it's like well I dropped a frame I gotta stop go right. back requeue the tape and you're like oh that sucks I have to eat another burrito but when you're doing a live shoot it's you know 
what do you do? You tell the talent to go back? Right. And I think it's worth um, taking a little break here to, to maybe talk through um, why those limitations exist in QuickTime, because I don't think we've really ever talked about, you know, sort of what makes QuickTime a problematic format for real-time capture. Um, and the biggest one is this idea of the sample table and the fact that, you know, unlike something like HDV in a transport stream where any given chunk of the file is internally consistent, well, not any given chunk, but you can sort of slice an HDV file in half and end up with two playable HDV files. If you do that with a QuickTime file, you'll end up with two broken QuickTime files because there's a big header that tells QuickTime where to find all the data within your file. And without that header, what you have is a chunk of random data. Right. And so, yeah, so what it is is you can think of it as a book with a table of contents where each chapter is one frame of video. And the only, and the problem is the chapters aren't actually labeled in the book. The only place you find where each chapter starts is in the table of contents at the beginning. It tells you what page number that chapter starts on. And there's no capital letters and there's no punctuation. So if you try to read through the book from start to finish, you're fine. You start at the beginning and you sort of keep up with where everything's going. But if you want to like open to a random chapter, you want to, you know, you want to find a frame of video in the middle of the movie, the only way to do that is to look it up in the table of contents, figure out what page it is, and then turn to that page. So this, you know, and in QuickTime, that's called a sample table. And what it is is the, you know, it's an incredibly flexible system where a frame can just be written to disk anywhere within the file. Like you just write it. I mean, it doesn't even have to be in the same file, but for simplicity's sake, you know, the frame gets written somewhere inside the file. And it doesn't have to be in order. It doesn't have to be, you know, it doesn't have to start with any number. It doesn't have to end. It doesn't have any of the constraints that most of the other formats have. The only thing is when you write that frame into the file, you remember where you started it and where you ended it, and you write those into the sample table. And that way when when you play back the file, you don't start at a point in the file and keep reading forward. You, you look up a frame, find where it is in the file, read it. Look up the next frame in the sample table, find it, read it. And so you know, there's no guarantee that one frame follows after another. There can be you know, an indeterminately large gap in between each one, or they can even go, you know, you can even put the frames in backwards and it will still play. And what that means is if you lose that sample table at the front, then QuickTime or whatever application is playing back the movie has no way to find that start point of each of those frames. And so the, you know, the data inside that file is without the services of a very expensive, you know, service to recover the file, that data is ra- is as good as random to you. Right. And for the way most applications handle capture is that they sort of write all the data into the file and then at the very end when you hit stop in Final Cut, for example, then they go back and 
add this sample table because at that point they know they've sort of kept a running log internally of where everything goes and then they write it out to disk at the very end which is fine uh, unless you don't stop the capture by hitting escape you stop the capture by kicking the power cord out of your computer or force quitting the app because it hung or whatever it may be right right and the problem is that's actually that yeah so if you are calling through QuickTime to do your QuickTime writing which most everyone is um, because that was the whole panacea of QuickTime was you know we'll handle everything you just you know invite us to the party and we'll make sure everybody has a good time um, but, but the problem is they would usually fall asleep in the middle of the party and leave you there um, so yeah so you you link in QuickTime, you say, I'm, you know, I'm going to use QuickTime to do all my capture because look at how easy it is to write this app. I can you know, spend more time cashing checks and doing blow. But in reality, it's anyone... Really how QuickTime developers live. No, but like, yeah, people who you know, write iPhone apps that just link QuickTime, I'm sure. Nice. Well. I don't know. Nonetheless. On, onward. You... Uh, yeah, you have to. So, so every, most every app out there just uses QuickTime. And if you do that, or if you, you know, go even higher level and use their entire capture framework, which most people who capture live video do, then you don't get that functionality. It just, it always writes out this, you know, it keeps the entire sample table in memory as it's building the file. It writes the frames and the audio to the disk the whole time, but it's not until you say, okay, I'm done, stop the movie, that's when you get the sample table written to disk. And that's why if you've ever used a capture app and had it crash in the middle, you get a file, but you don't get a playable file. And so this is always, you know, like nearly every app that plagued Scopebox users. And so it never really, even though it was the most requested feature in one before we shipped, and even though it was one of the things that people were most excited about, um, partly because you, you know, a lot of people, you know, everyone who's doing video records their video. Not everyone who's doing video uses scopes. And so you can go to anyone and give them the laundry list of features that Scopebox does. And you can say, it replaces a monitor and a vector scope and a waveform and a recorder. And they say, I don't know what a vector scope or a monitor is, but I have a recorder and I need to buy a new one because HD is expensive. And if you can replace that, great. And that was always the one we were most reticent to tell people we replaced because recorders don't crash by and large. Computers do. And it's a it's a very sad email conversation when someone has just finished a shoot and they don't have one of their files. Right. Uh, and so yeah, so the next big feature added in Scopebox 3 is what we're calling failsafe capture. And what that does is we you know, we just didn't invite QuickTime to the party, and we're doing our own file writing with our own proprietary stack. And so what that lets us do is we still write out QuickTime movies because QuickTime is an open format, and so we know what the files are supposed to look like. 
that's well documented. But now we are writing them ourselves, and that means we can continually write out that sample table. So the file is going to be valid even if the app crashes. And that's a good thing. Yeah. And it, what's nice is it adds and it, it enables another feature, sort of a tandem feature, which is live edit. And this is this is more of a you know, it's a nice demoable feature and it's going to be really nice for a very small subset of users. But for those people who can, who have the infrastructure to use it, it's going to be great. And what Live Edit lets you do is, because we're writing out the sample table, we, if you know ahead of time roughly how long your movie's going to be, so you're, say you're doing a a concert and you know it's going to be two hours long. You can type in two hours into our recorder and say that's my preset duration. And we'll write out a two hour long movie to begin with where we write a sample table that's two hours long but not a movie and then we fill in the frames where we said they were going to be when we wrote the sample table. And what that lets you do is take that movie while we're still recording into it and bring it into Final Cut or Avid and start cutting it or start logging it or start, you know, whatever you need to do. And you can even, I guess, drop it into compressor and start compressing it while we're still recording into it. And as long as you don't read past the end of where we've written to, you know, if you read past the end, you're going to just see gray frames. But as long as you're shuttling around, working on the head of the clip while we're recording into the tail of the clip, you can be editing with it at the same time we're still writing into it. So you can say, I'm doing this four-camera shoot. I want to record two and a half hours on each camera. Hit record, and then you know set your destination for those records to somewhere on your network. You know, assuming you have a fast, this is where the infrastructure thing becomes a big deal. You know, as long as you have drives that are resolvable across your network and that are fast enough for this data, you can say, dump those files there and then bring them into Final Cut and start doing your multi-camera edit while we're still, while the concert's still going. And you don't have to segment it into a bunch of different little clips. You can just be you know, tossing frames into the same QuickTime movie that we're still playing out. Right, which is, as you say, a pretty cool feature for the set of people for which that matters, but... If you if you have a trailer that you've built that you pull up to rock venues right. to record... I mean, I think where it's, it's going to You know, it's a nice... It's obviously a nice demo feature, and then there, there was a company um, ages ago that had a, a similar solution that required... Um, a rack full of X-Serves and, you know, probably a good $50,000 in hardware. Um, and right. so the fact that you can do this now with, you know, literally, you know, Mac minis and, and you know, a Drobo or something on your network um, and Thunderbolt, you know, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Do you think you get enough performance off Drobo? Well, if you're going to ProRes or something, sure. Huh. Yeah, you know, with a Drobo Pro or a ReadyNAS or whatever. I mean, we're not talking huge bit rates there. Interesting. So, 
So, you know, you, you mentioned not inviting QuickTime to the party. Um, it seems like there are some other areas in, in Scopebox 3 where QuickTime's not invited to the party anymore. Um, well, so let's see. So we've, we've added native support for Blackmagic. We now use their, we talk directly to their cards, which means we don't have to go through the sequence grabber API. One of the big uh, complaints from people who were using it on slower machines in uh, in edit stations who were, you know, say they were, they were using it as a dedicated scope on a secondary machine that they had swapped out usually. Um, it was possible to for the app to run slow enough that it built up a back buffer of frames inside the black magic card and there was nothing we could do about that but now because we're talking directly to the card we can actually sense that and drop them which means that you're always going to be monitoring the newest frame right and it also just you know it's one less layer of abstraction between us and the hardware and you know sequence grabber is one of the more ancient and unloved bits of QuickTime. Um, and yeah, they're, they're... we probably we probably shave about ten percent of overhead off right. the app, and it by just makes not copying stuff through QuickTime. It yeah. makes life a little easier in terms of troubleshooting and everything else. I think. Yeah. Um, and you know, and until it gives us the opportunity to present a much more coherent user interface right. for choosing devices. And it's worth noting that even in in all current versions of Mac OS X, there is no replacement for Sequence Grabber um, in a you know end-to-end -end way. Uh, Mountain Lion, maybe. Yeah. So um, and you know I, well, we like doing native support, and we hope to continue down that path. Yeah. We have others planned. Let's right. say that. Um, so what else? I mean, there's there's um, sort of one other really huge change in Scopebox 3, and that's the adaptive kernel engine. You want to get into that a little bit? Yeah. So I think we so we talked about this a little bit in a previous. I suppose one. we did. Yeah, but we talked about the JIT and how you can compile code on the fly so that it does exactly what you need, and how that can run really fast. And so well, let's talk about how users will see it as they start using Scopebox 3. Okay, so so when we were thinking through what three was going to do differently from two, one of the the two things that came up a lot that we wanted to solve was users were starting to scope um, RGB, na like native RGB signals. So as people started switching to capture cards over, um, you know, FireWire solutions and whatnot. You know, there are a lot of people coming in RGB 444 over HDSDI. And then two, with that, a lot of people are bringing in higher bitrate signals, so 10-bit signals like, you know, RGB 444 um, or even YUV 10-bit. And so what we wanted to do was find a way to... What, we, what would happen if you chose one of those sources in Scopebox 2 is we would transcode, you know, we'd convert it on the fly to, RG, to YUV 8-bit. And that's what all of our scopes were computed off of, YUV 8-bit, which meant, I mean, it wasn't a huge problem. It meant that we had to go through the performance hit of converting everything just to give you a lower quality scope. 
there was a little bit of a rounding error in the RGB to YUV transform because there always has to be. But by and large, it was a workable solution for people. Um, but what we wanted to do in three is really show people what what the native signal looks like. And so if you open an RGB parade on an RGB signal, you should actually be seeing where the actual code points in that digital stream are falling on the scale. So none of the aliasing artifacts that you would get going through the one or two color space transforms. Right, and consequently and, and also a and nice... none of the quantization going from 10-bit to 8-bit. And a nice performance boost. Right. And so to do that, I mean, there are a couple ways to do it. The way that most of the industry does that is they just upsample everything. So whether you get an 8-bit or 10-bit signal, it goes to float. You bring it to a floating point, and you do all your math in floating point. The problem is it's still not really fast enough for the kind of problems we're solving in Scopebox. And two, you know, there's still rounding, there are minute rounding errors there, but there's still, you know, you're not dealing with the actual number that came off the card. Right. And if you see Mike at NAB, ask him about his um, float rounding error joke. Hey, that wasn't mine. I, I, I cribbed that from someone. Oh. But nonetheless, it's a good joke. Um, and so what we want, what we wanted to do was provide scopes in the native formats and provide a signal pipeline in the negative formats. And we also, which would, which would mean for every palette that you can open in scope box, we would have to have an eight bit YUV, a 10 bit YUV, an eight bit RGB, a 10 bit RGB. And with the with the the way that Scopebox two was written, we would have to have an eight bit YUV to eight bit RGB transform, and and that would be on each one of these palettes. And then we'd have to have the math, so we'd hand a frame to each one of these palettes. It would have to do the conversion itself, and then do. And so it quickly became just sort of unbelievably slow, and uh, you know that if. If you were to sit down and do a first pass at solving the problem, that's probably how you would do it. Um, even if you did five or ten passes, you might still be somewhere around there. <laughs> There's a reason why it's been three years since we shipped a version. Um, so what we, so what Scopebox three does instead is it. There's there's a programmer, essentially, who gets shipped with each copy. And you and the program, so we've got little bits of code for all of those things I just mentioned. So we have a way of drawing a scope in 8-bit. We have a way of drawing a scope in 10-bit. And then we have a way of converting 8-bit YUV to 8-bit RGB. But all of these things just exist as little individual programs, which get glommed together as needed. And then that piece of code gets compiled on your machine. So it means. Um, we don't have to do, you know, one of the slower things to do on a computer is what's called branching. You know, it's simple if-then logic. So if I need to draw an RGB palette, then do this math. If you do that once for every frame, it's not bad. But if you do it once for every single pixel in the image, then you're talking about huge performance hits. And so what, what, 
just sticking the pieces of code that we need together and then running it means we can get rid of all those if-then statements because we know what we need to do. So we build a program. So anytime you open a palette, we look at all the palettes that you've opened and we say, okay, so now they've got the waveform and the vector scope and the RGB parade open. So take the code for drawing a waveform and the code for drawing a vector scope and the code for RGB, stick those inside a loop and then get the loop for the format that their capture card is. So 8-bit YUV and we wrap that around the outside and then we, you know, oh, they've got an alert too. So stick that code inside the loop too to check to see if we trigger the alert and then run run that, you know, uh, compile that piece of code to run on their computer, on the user's computer. So it gives us a bunch of advantages. One, it means if we need to support a new format, we just write the what we call the super kernel, and that's the thing that supports the, the incoming formats. If we need to add a new palette, we just write the palette the code that takes the values and draws them. And then the way that these things are separated, they just plug together in such a way that any format goes to any palette. And we just choose the right format, choose the right palettes, plug them together, and compile on the user's machine. And then because of that, we're able to do things like enable specific optimizations for the hardware you're running on. Like if you're running on, you know, an Intel Sandy Bridge processor, we know that, and we're able to run, you know, different vectorized optimizations than we would on one that, you know, say a PowerPC machine. And so that way the code we generate is either, you know, it's Altevect or it's SSE, and it's the version of SSE your machine supports, and it's, you know, it's optimized for the number of kernels you're running, you know, the number of pallets you're running, it's optimized for the bit depth you're in. Right. And by doing it on the user's machine, it means we have smaller binaries. We have less, you know, because we could potentially pre-compile every possible permutation and ship them, but that one gets pretty difficult to manage and two really chunks up the app and, and is just not an efficient way to do this. Yeah. I mean, we are shipping an entire compiler. Yeah, I suppose. But in in any case, I mean, this really lets us make sure that we don't have to do X factorial sort of permutations on our end. Right. Um, so we we really know that the user is going to get the right combination every time they open a palette. Right. And so you you may actually see this if you open enough palettes and then you change a setting, you'll sometimes see a very brief pop almost. It's not even, at this point it's not even a pop because we've gotten rid of most of the visual artifacts of this. But what's happening in the background when you make a change, like you open a new palette or something, you'll see all the palettes stop for, you know, a fraction of a frame. They just sort of stall. And what's happening in the background is we're actually building a new program in the background to run that because because the environment's changed now. We're running a different set of palettes we you know we scrap all the code and recompile a whole new you know essentially a new version of the app a new version of the pipeline and uh, and then hand that frame into it and swap out all the drawings for that and so you'll see 
what happens is each pallet gets drawn twice in a row in that instance because we've actually just changed something. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know. I don't know of anyone else. It's, it's kind of the same solution to a similar problem as um, people are doing with CUDA or OpenCL. Right. It's a similar. It's a similar. Um, it's a similar problem needing to needing to deal with lots and lots of data quickly. Uh, it's a little different because um, our problem set's just a little different. Right. Uh, that's that's why we're doing. I mean, a lot of people. I guess the question that a lot of people would ask is like, does that mean you're doing lots of stuff on the GPU? And in reality, the pallets are all still computed on the CPU. And that's just because of the nature of these, this problem set. GPUs are very bad at drawing a dot at a random place. Whereas, um, you know, so GPUs are very good at changing the color of all the dots on screen, but not moving them. Um, I mean, they're fine. You know, you think of, you think of like, polygon counts and stuff in games, which is all good and well, but, um, you know, when we're drawing on screen, we need a polygon. If we were to do it that way, we need a polygon for every single pixel for every single palette. And so when you're talking a, you know, an HD image, you're talking dozens of millions of pixels. Right. And we do still use you know, some GPU acceleration on the drawing side. Right, so everything's still drawn on the GPU, and we do a lot of the final... So we, all we use AKE for is for the... for computing the data that the palettes are drawn with. All the drawing is still done with OpenGL. So all everything that looks nice, all the niceness is added right. in post. When, what's, one nice thing, to, or one, one thing that's worth noting, of course, then, is that AKE you've probably already gathered is always looking at the full signal coming in. We're not sort of, well, is your waveform monitor is only, you know, 200 by 200 pixels. So we're just going to only sort of, we're going to do a bunch of trickery so that we save some cycles. No, that we're always sort of analyzing everything that's coming in. And if you scale down your waveform later on, you know, that's being scaled on the drawing side, not on the math side. Mm, right, right. So the other thing I think users will see right away is just a sort of general polish and, and clean up of the interface. I think it's a much more modern looking application, even though, uh, you know, functionally it's similar in a lot of ways to 2.0. It's, it's a much nicer app that functions more logically and more consistently and coherently. Mm -hmm. um, and then we've been able to add a bunch of new stuff because we've, one of the things that AKE did, you know, both AKE and the fact that computers just keep getting faster is we've clawed back a lot more performance from the system, um, which means we can start adding new features and do basically do more processing on every frame. And so we've added things like envelopes and alerts. Um, so let's see, how do we want to describe these? Um, so alerts are alerts are a common feature in high-end scopes, so they're probably easier to explain what they do is when you when your video signal is coming in, you can watch it very carefully to make sure it looks right. And so that you know, so there's the there's the things like trying to match two cameras that you do by looking at the what the signal actually looks like. 
Um, but if you're trying to do things like FCC, you know, spec, trying to match the FCC specs or trying to, you know, deliver a final edit for broadcast on, you know, from one of the big, the big 20 companies or, you know, it's going out, it's going out to somewhere with an air department that, right. Somewhere where they have a Q, QA department who's gonna, who sent you that PDF ahead of time and told you, you know, you got to be under 714 millivolts and, you know, most likely if they took the time to write that document and send it to you, they also have someone who screens all the tapes when they come in and tells you when you didn't do it and makes you change it. And the way that that's mostly done now when you're trying to do those sort of standards compliance things is you use alerts on one of these high-end scopes. And what it does is it watches the video for you. So you give it video, you give it time code, and then it you tell it like, okay, you can't go over 100 IRE, you can't go below 7.5, you can't go below zero, whatever it is. And then it watches the video as it plays out of the tape deck. And wherever your signal goes too hot, it writes a little log in a in a database or in a you know an Excel document or something. And then you know you've got the time code and you've got what happened. You know your luma was too hot, your luma too, was too low, and then that gets sent to you, and you're supposed to fix it. And so what you know so Scopebox has that now too. We take alerts. You can set them up on any of your recorders, and so when you're recording a file, or you can tell it to just just record the alerts. We'll take the timecode coming in, and you tell us what things you want us to look for. So Luma excursions, too hot, too low. Chroma excursions, you know what percentage. Uh, gamut warnings, if your gamut's going to change between YUV and RGB. Uh, audio peaks. I think those are all of them. Oh, whether or not they're slug or not. So anytime the signal gets goes to black, we can tell you. Um, and so then we'll give you timecode logs for when all of those things happened in your video. Pretty straightforward. Um, what's nice about scope boxes, we spit those out in you know all of the formats you would want if you were an editor. So we'll. We'll give you a HTML file, which you can hand off to someone, which has, if you're recording the video, it gives you the video, and then it gives you a list of all the things, and you can click on them, and it'll slug to them in the video file. Um, we've got, what else do we have? We got Final Cut Pro. Right, we've got Final Cut 7, 7. and X, um, which will bring in, and depending on the, the application, we'll put markers in your video labeled with the alert type that was fired so you can have different types of alerts um, mixed and matched and we'll get markers and if the alert actually was continuous for a chunk of time we'll draw the proper length marker so you can actually see that visually um, and then we also output csv uh, which is sort of the the bog standard format for dealing with these sorts of things that you can either bring into excel or you know wrap in your own way with some pearl scripts or something dump into your CMS or whatever you're using. Right. I think that's it. Yeah. Yeah. So So yeah, those are really big. You did you did most of the legwork on that. Yeah. And they're uh they're really nice. It's a uh, I feel I mean like some of the high-end scopes now are doing everyone's doing CSV. It's pretty 
I don't know of anybody doing all the cool things we're doing, though. Right. I think it's going to be, well, we'll see how it goes. But, you know, I think it'd be pretty nice to be able to jump right into your editor and jump right to that point where the video clipped and, you know, deal with it, you know, do some color correction or, or whatever. Yeah, it's going to be, you know, I remember getting those logs from Discovery and typing in the time codes and then looking and being like, what are they seeing? Okay, and then typing in the next one. And it's just, you know, I, uh, I would have killed for that. Yeah. What, I don't remember, the, what's that? I command, uh, it was X option something. What was go to next marker? Uh, um, I've forgotten that. It's been a long time since I've been in Final Cut 7. Are there any other big features in Scopebox 3, sort of specific things you want to call out here? Or? Also, there's envelopes. That okay, was the other yeah. big thing. So alerts are great when you're reviewing a tape, a final layoff, something like that. You know, I could totally see someone turning on alerts and and laying off their final tape and then going back and checking the alert log. It's just sort of one less set of eyes. But when you're doing a color correct, when you're actually in the room trying to set your look and trying to make sure things are legal, you're, you're really shuttling around a lot. And trying to do stuff off time code doesn't quite, didn't quite seem right to us looking at the workflow. Because it meant that you had to you had to constantly be like tossing your logs or keeping track of what, you know, because if you're jogging back and forth, you build up these alerts for the same point in time code multiple times. And you have to remember if it was a problem you've already fixed or not. And if you, you know, oh, I fixed that one so I can delete it. And then if it comes back, that means it's still there. But if I don't delete it and then I go back over it, I have to remember that I already fixed it. And so what we added was envelopes, which are they're hard to describe. You just need to see them. Um, think of them as the little peak line that gets drawn in VU meters, but for scopes. So what we do is we draw a bounds around the outside of your trace. So if you got the waveform, we draw a little yellow line on the top of every on the top of your trace and on the bottom of your trace. And you know that every single pixel falls within those two yellow lines. And then what we do is draw a red line, which is the highest the top line's ever gone in any one position. And another one in the bottom, which is the lowest the line's ever been. In the right. same way with the vector scope, we draw like a little blob around the outside. And so that would be like a peak hold on a mixing console. Right except we do it for every single vertical line in your waveform or every degree on your waveform or on your vector scope. And so what you can do really quickly see is one where every single pixel falls within on a scope. So you know everything's inside the yellow bounds. So there's not one pixel that's over 100 IRE which is going to get triggered by the robo QA later. Like, every pixel in your image is falling within wherever the yellow line is. And then you also know that since you last hit the reset peaks, everything's fallen within those red lines. And so what you can do is start watching down a scene and reset your peaks on all your scopes and then just watch it. And then when you're done with that scene, check, just pause on your 
on your color correction suite and look at your look at scope box and if all of those peak lines are within legal limits then you're done you don't have to watch each one separately as you play through you don't have to look at trigger logs alert logs you just you know everything fell within that hit reset and keep going and likewise if you're fixing problems you just reset the peaks and play it down again sounds useful let's hope so I think it will be yeah and it's a it's a visually it's a cool feature too and I haven't seen anyone else doing it so no so that'll be you know so finally in three we're we're at a point in the product's life cycle where we're not just aping hardware that's what I'm most excited about right and I think you know for a long time it's like oh my god we are making an oscilloscope out of bits <laughs> you know, we are pretending like we are scoping an analog signal using bits and pretending like it's a CRT that's being rasterized with magnets attached to our INRQ. But now it's like it's a digital signal and we're just telling you stuff about it. And hopefully we're telling you more useful stuff than you were getting before. Right. And I think, you know, as you've probably gathered from all of the previous discussion here, you know, we built what we think at least is a pretty solid foundation now with 3.0. And so I think one of the things I'm excited about from the development perspective is that we're going to have an opportunity now to, you know, start doing some iteration on feature set. And so maybe in some future updates to 3.0 or future versions of the product, we'll be able to do some more of this experimentation because we won't be dealing with oh, wow, we have to fight QuickTime again, or oh, we have to deal with this device again, or whatever. Um, hopefully we've built a, a framework that carries forward for a while. Yeah, we've got, I mean, with AKE and with our new capture system, we have a, I'm confident that we're, uh, that we're ready to go. I mean, we're supporting 4K sources out of the box. That's one of the new things in 3. And I think it's going to take a while for the rest of the industry to catch up to that. So we've got, you know, I don't, I don't see us having a moving target there for a while. Like I think everyone else is playing catch up there. Right. I, it's going to be a while before we go ultra HD TV two or whatever they're calling it. So there's no moving target there. Um, we can support 16 bit with a couple hours of work. We can support 32-bit with a couple hours of work. We could move to float if somebody came up with a float capture device. Um, I mean, we're really pretty agnostic now about incoming formats. You know, supporting a new format in AKE is uh, 10, 20 lines of code. So, So that's good. That should go quick. And so now it's just making making new palettes, making things look you know, giving you new views into your data, since that's all it is, and uh, and iterating and trying to make it streamline it, remove old cruft, get rid of things that you know are too anachronistic, and uh, give you more and more information about less about you know what the signal looks like when it's traveling down a wire, and more stuff about how to light and how to compose and how to how to you know set up your green screen or how to right and i think you know hopefully if next week 
proves out that it is as solid of a release as we think it is. Um, you know, hopefully we can start to move on some of that pretty quick. Yeah. It'll be nice to be out of the polishing stage. Yeah. Just Although, I mean, okay, so it's been it's been an interesting life cycle <laughs> this time. <laughs> I mean, so before this, I mean, the version 1 and version 2 were relatively compact life cycles. I mean, I don't think either of them took more than a year. Um, and before that, working in TV and even documentary film, like, it was, it was rare that you spent a year on something. And so, you know, a lot of people, you know, a lot of listeners probably have worked on long projects, but to go this long without showing it to people, I mean, without getting real feedback. So, I mean, you can only show things to people and they, uh, they love them. But, you know, there's something different when you ask someone for money. When you put a value on it and you're like, how's about we say it's worth this? And they say, yes, I will give you that much money for it versus no, I will not. It's not worth that. It's a, it's a whole different type of feedback. And so it'll be nice to, to be past this. It's been a, it's been a long slog. Yeah, and, uh, I'm I'm proud of what's coming out the end of it, but I'm even more excited about what we can do going forward now. Yeah, agreed. And uh, so, what else? Yeah, so next Tuesday. Yeah, we'll throw a short video in the show notes um, so you can get a sneak peek at Scopebox yeah. Three. Um, yeah. So, so next Tuesday, the website's going to go live. You'll be able to download the trial. You'll be able to buy it. That's when this video is going to go up on the website. But we will link to it now because you put up with us far more than most people do. <laughs> and uh, and then and then we're going to NAB. I don't think we've told anyone that yet. So we will be in South Lower. Um, come check it out there too. Yeah, we'd love to uh, give you a demo or talk to you about the podcast or a little both. And I've got I've got a next I've got one of those expo passes here. Um, so let me see here. So the code, if you want to get into the show for free, NAB 2012, is LV3659, and we'll put that in the show notes too. And you register at nabshow.com. And if you haven't been to NAB before, it's a thing. Uh, looks like it's going to be a really good show this year, Mike. We were talking about this a little earlier. It was re- it was really good last year, it, and it looks like it's going to be even better this year. Yeah, I agree. I agree. We're seeing. Um, I was just going through the vendor list today and saw a lot of names that I haven't seen the last few years. People who cut their marketing budgets and decided not to go to the show are coming back. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not even sure for like because we took us some time off too. It just for a while there, it felt like the trade show was dying as a as in like a necessary form of outreach right like i think we got we all got really excited about the internet and um spending no money trying to find customers and just letting them find us but uh 
I don't know. I mean, that's not really the point of a trade show, I think, in the end. Well, and the nice thing about, you know, NAB, which I think differentiates it from even something like CES, which is obviously, a, you know, similar vein and held at the same place, is that, in my mind at least, NAB is a little bit more like a show like Macworld, where you've got a lot more like-minded people coming together and sort of people who work together in different parts of their lives because everyone's interrelated you know you might be selling a production product but you're sort of working with the people doing the post-production products and other production products and you know right. the storage vendor that's going to host the captured data from your capture software whatever um, and so i think there is more even if it's not like we all get together and go to parties we do well yes huge parties because um, we're all so full of energy after 12 hours on the show floor um, but there's i think more of that vibe and i think that that also is visible to um people attending the show but also unlike something like ces where at least traditionally the bulk of the people attending are journalists and um people and retail outlets and people looking to add products to their catalogs and to, or to buy companies or whatever nab is attended by far more by users people, users yeah you know people from networks people who buy equipment for networks and actual like shooters and the people who are actually going to be using this stuff every day or the people who are using this stuff every day who come to give props or to ask questions or to you know see with a sneak peek of the next version of something um, and that's pretty different from a show like ces or um, even like from macworld or or you know e3 or some of the other big conferences in the tech world yeah it is i mean it's it's a lot of work and it's sort of tough planning things around it but it um it's a good show and it's it's fun to see everyone yeah both i mean it's fun to see i enjoy hanging out with our competitors i enjoy hanging out with our partners i really enjoy talking to the users yeah absolutely i mean it's a great place for users to give us feedback and actually like you know stand at a computer with a user and have them drive and show us their workflow. And we say, oh, wow, I've never thought of using the software this way. And if we were trying to explain this via email, we'd never have gotten it. But right. we're you know, sitting here and we can look at this. So, yeah, it's, you so know. So stop by our booth. It's we, are, we shouldn't tell them what the booth is. I don't know it. It's 14410. Look for um, the big thing that's going to be on the aisle is like Creative Cow and... Uh, are you sure about that? Yeah, they're around there. Let me be sure. Fourteen. Assimilate. Uh, yeah, they are there. We're right across from Assimilate. And right behind Otherworld Computing, so if you need a raid array or something. We'll uh, sneak one through the back of the booth. Uh, where is it? Oh, I'm totally going to do that. Yeah, that'll go well. Uh, still use those screwdrivers from a few years back. Hey, that's good. Um, yeah, we are in South Lower near the back. It's definitely row fourteen thousand. I don't know the number offhand. We'll put it in the show notes. How about that? That works for me. But we're we're back there. We'll be around, and that's in like a month and a half. Which is terrifying. Yeah, I went on the thing yesterday and it said 45 days. 
That was yesterday. I bet today it says 44. Oh, God. Man, unless they didn't take into account leap year. <laughs> Man days left. <laughs> All right. uh, see, I got a floating point joke in. Um, okay. We'll see you uh, sometime in the future. Yeah. Talk to you later. And uh, check out the site next Tuesday. Check out the video before then. Yeah. And buy some extra copies. They're collectible. Okay. Well, uh, yeah. Have fun on your trip to DC. Yeah. And then I'll be out there. We'll have a party. School Box 3 launch party. Yeah. Next week. If you know us, ask us for details. Yeah. Like if you live in San Francisco and you want us to buy you a drink, come to the. Send us an email. We're going to go somewhere on Tuesday night. All right. You might as well meet us. Okay.